And the time to start, if you're not living your dream, is right now. Start setting goals and setting out where you set in the course of your life and setting it all up so that you get somewhere in the future. When all that comes together, something happens called fulfillment. If you are not experiencing awesomeness in every aspect of your life, it's just from internal block or barrier disconnect that you've chosen to take on. Life is as easy or as hard as we want to make it. And I got my hands and my eyeballs and my heart around any information I could around holistic healing. And that led me down a never-ending rabbit hole of which I'm still spelunking into the depths of. I needed something like ayahuasca to really wake me up because I was very rigid and very stuck in my ways and very structured and controlling. And my first ayahuasca ceremony cracked my ego in a billion pieces. And uh, that's when I believe when you when we really follow our deepest truth, when we really follow our soul, when we really follow our true calling, the universe rises to support us moment to moment to moment. Welcome to the Holistic Health and Human Potential Podcast. I am your host, Ronnie Landis. I'm an international speaker, author of multiple books, an integrative nutritionist, a transformation and embodiment coach, and simply a man who has devoted most of my life to the study, application, and integration of human potential. And it is my biggest inspiration to bring you weekly episodes that will expand your mind, challenge your paradigm, deepen your heart, and help you to embody the greatest version of yourself as I believe you are meant to do something incredible with your life and this podcast exists simply to support you on that journey. Welcome to another episode of the Holistic Human Optimization Podcast. I'm your host, Ronnie Landis. We have a truly amazing interview lined up for you today. And before we dive headfirst into it, I wanted to share a quick offer from one of our sponsors. If you're looking for the highest quality superfoods, natural supplements, and lifestyle upgrade products, I want to recommend you take a look at Purium Health Products. They produce some of the world's best superfood products by maintaining total control of the sourcing process through producing a majority of their products on their own farms and using their patented live dehydration process, which helps to maintain total nutritional integrity. Some of my favorite products I use daily are the Super Amino 23 Protein Replacement Amino Acid Product, the Love Super Meal, which is a live, organic, vegan meal replacement formula. The Apothecary product, which is an organic, GMO-free cherry concentrate that helps increase natural melatonin levels and aids in REM sleep. And also, their revolutionary first-ever anti-GMO product, the Biomedic which has been shown in preclinical studies to safely remove up to 74% of the GMO insecticide glyphosate from the human body in around six weeks of using the product on a daily basis. And that is just the tip of the iceberg with what this company offers. I encourage you to visit their website, www.ishoppurium.com, and use my coupon code HUMANPOTENTIAL all spelled in one word, to receive a $50 coupon on your first order and up to 25% on reoccurring orders after that. Again, the website is www.com. 
iShopPurium.com and use the coupon code HUMANPOTENTIAL. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Holistic Human Optimization Show. I'm your host, Ronnie Landis, as always. And today we have a special guest coming on for the second time, Mr. Perry Marshall. And if you remember, we did an incredible interview uh, pretty recently on the evolution of the human species 2.0. And we really talked about his more recent book, Evolution 2.0, Breaking the Deadlock Between Darwin and Design. And that was an incredibly fascinating conversation. And um, between me and Perry, we kind of there was like this really beautiful synergy, and there was this desire to go way further into the conversation, um, into some of the most prevalent uh, topics around the future of the human species, and we didn't really have the time to do that. So I am excited to have Perry on for the second time, so we can elaborate on. Where are we going as a human race and what are some of the topics that we need to understand um, as it affects our daily decisions and as we kind of get a little bit of more foresight, not just looking into the past, but looking at what's going on right now and where is this potentially leading us. So uh, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I love this subject and I love your openness to just... Uh, throwing ourselves down the rabbit hole and seeing where we end up. So, um, and and the human race is definitely in a rabbit hole already, right? I mean, I don't don't think there could be too much debating that. So let's talk about where it could go and where we should go. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, I'm definitely a rabbit hole type of person. I'll go down (laughs) as far as I can. I get on these tangentials and it takes me into many different rabbit holes. Um, and you know, it's interesting because we are in a particular rabbit hole for sure. And it feels like, um, in some instances, it feels like the trajectory of the human race has no resolution or it has no, you know, I, I, I heard somebody, um, somebody say something that was so insightful the other day on a different podcast. He said that what we used to have are problems and problems have a solution what we have now are predicaments and <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good mm-hmm. and i w- it changed my whole framework i was like oh wow that's a really interesting way to phrase it and so i'd like to kind of lead with that if we can as we go into this this entire conversation around artificial intelligence and all the different things that we're going to unpack there well, you know, there's there's predicaments and, and there's also dilemmas and paradoxes, right? You know, so like I think where we're at with the human genome project and gene editing. So now that it is possible to edit genes as easily as cutting paste in Microsoft Word just about, um, we're, we have a dilemma. Um and, and uh, maybe you could call it a predicament, but we there are, there are things that I think we have a moral obligation to try to fix. Um, 
you know, if, if, the, if there is something that clearly, obviously, unambiguously, and perhaps hopefully in a even simplistic way is just broken, then maybe we have an opportunity to fix it now. But it's a very, very slippery slope. So, so let me give you an example. Um, cystic fibrosis is caused by a single letter copying error in human DNA. Okay? One letter, and cystic fibrosis is this very complicated disease caused by a malfunctioning protein. And the protein is found in all these different systems of the body and it affects them all differently. So it's this very complicated disease. But it, it's basically uh, in a stack of dictionaries or a stack of encyclopedias, there's one letter in the middle of one of them that's copied wrong. Only one. And, you, and, that, and if it's that particular wrong letter, you get cystic fibrosis. Now, I'm not medically qualified to be sure about this, but as far as I can tell, if you just fix that letter, no cystic fibrosis, okay? It would appear to be a fairly straightforward problem. Well, I think a lot of people would be really happy to get rid of cystic fibrosis. So, all right, great, good enough for now. But then you get to more complicated problems, and the problems, the complexity of the problems goes up exponentially. And one thing, if there is, if there is anything that is abundantly clear to me from my Evolution 2.0 research, by the way, which goes back 14 years now, is we have only scratched the scratch on the surface of how living things actually work. Okay, I would say we understand no more than 5% of the evolutionary process, which means 95% of all of that is like dark matter. Okay, um, and, and there's a lot of arrogance, there's a lot of hubris, um, there's a lot of assumptions piled on top of assumptions piled on top of assumptions, and they are very dangerous assumptions. So one of the assumptions is that is that genes contain the entire plan for a human body. We know this is not true. Okay, uh, in fact, the the relationship between a gene and a body is sort of like the relationship between sheet music and a pop song on the radio. Okay, so how much if if you had all the sheet music? For a Lady Gaga song, how much does that actually tell you? Not a whole lot. Yeah, does it tell you about the reverb? Does it tell you about the mix? Does it tell you which kind of keyboard they used? Does it tell you which you know setting on the synthesizer they used? Does it tell you which female vocalist or which backup singer or, or what kind of strings they put on the guitar? Or what kind of heads they put on the drums? It doesn't tell you any of that. Right. And and this is this is actually probably a pretty reasonable analogy. Like, well, yeah, you know, if you want to change the music, you can change the sheet music. But mm. it's only again, you're only scratching the surface. And so we don't even know how much we can or cannot fix with gene editing. Um, and I I really am concerned that uh, that. You know the toothpaste is out of the tube, and we and we already can't put it back. And 
you know, I, I had a really interesting conversation with a with a guy about six months ago. He said in software development, if somebody tells you that it's going to be ready in three months, what that means is it'll be ready in six months. <laughs> okay. He says, if somebody in biotech tells you it'll be ready in three months, it means they already did it three months ago and they're trying to figure out how to explain what already happened. <laughs> okay. And so it's kind of sobering. Um, and, uh, so, so this is, you know, this yeah. is just one of the predicaments mm -hmm. that we're in. Um, and, you know, like, how could a politician, like, I, I have very little faith in politicians, but e even if I did, like, how would a politician possibly understand all the issues that they might be trying to make laws about? Now, this is complicated stuff, man. Uh, so, man, some humility is greatly in order here. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I, I was thinking about as you were making the analogy to a song and a singer, which is if you look at a genetic code and all the different factors in the readout, you can you can get like it's kind of like um, there's a few different interesting examples like where from an intuitive perspective, if you're making a business deal, let's say, and you know this very well, um, if it all looks good on paper but something doesn't feel right about it, then there's an issue, right? And so, yeah. and it's kind of like looking at the DNA and genetic readout. It's like, okay, this is what it looks like on paper, but that doesn't tell you anything about the essence of what is um, behind or in front of that readout. Like it doesn't tell you anything about the soul of the person that you're trying to do a genetic readout on. Right. And then in that there's right. so many different or the emotion or the mental state or, or any of the other things. So there's so many different factors that are intrinsic to what it is to be a human or any other sentient life form, but it's not actually reading the sentience. It's just reading kind of like this, this hardware software readout, which is a pretty dangerous game when we're talking about replicating uh, life forms and, and then, you know, going down that trajectory. Well, and I, I think it's notable that you use the word soul. Uh, you know, there's a whole, like a whole tribe of people that want to tell you there is no soul. There's only selfish genes. Right. right? And, and, and they want to take everything and flatten it down to two dimensions or even one dimension and say, well, this is the explanation of everything. Well, that's just an empty ideology. It's not even scientifically correct. You know, the, the reason that we have a word like soul is that in people's everyday experience, they find it very usefully descriptive of their experience as a human being. Right. And so there's so much that we don't know. And and this actually goes. So so when when this crosses over into artificial intelligence, which, of course, is a huge topic now, um, you know, there's a there's an old science fiction book called The Soul of a New Machine. And there's there's this idea in science fiction and in pop culture that if the computers get fast enough, they'll eventually somehow through some mysterious process that nobody ever quite explains, 
that they will acquire a soul or that they will acquire self-awareness. And we don't have, we literally have not a shred of evidence that that is actually true. Um, you know, whether you want to talk about a, uh, you know, a Commodore 64 computer from the 1980s or whether you want to talk about the latest MacBook Pro, they're all as dumb as a box of rocks. And you can talk to Siri or you can talk to Alexa, but everybody knows there's nobody home. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> <laughs> right? Everybody knows. <laughs> and, you know, uh, the other night my, my kids were, like, trying to play a game with Alexa or uh, I don't know what they were, you know, they were, like, trying to talk to it. And, you know, um, a six-year-old can can make mincemeat out of uh, artificial intelligence in, like, ten seconds, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, and so, like, we don't even know what is this thing that is consciousness that is being. In fact, we know almost nothing about it. I mean, yes, you can put people under anesthesia and you can analyze their uh, their uh, their neurons and, and you can do CAT scans and that's that's great. But nobody's gotten to the essence of you know what is a sentient being of any kind. Um, you know, are 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 grasshoppers sentient? Are trees sentient? Um, they might be. You know, it sometimes it looks like they are. Uh, are bacteria sentient? I don't know. Uh, you could make a case for it, uh, but, but there's so much we don't know. And I, I've always maintained that science, for every every time science answers a question, the answer only provokes three more questions. You know, it's like cutting, chopping up a hydra, and it just you know multiplies on you, um, and and so. You know, we, we don't we don't really know now. In in some sense, that's comforting. Um, I think if the machines suddenly woke up, we would all be probably a little terrified. Um, but I don't. I think there are certain problems that have to be solved before that is ever going to happen, and nobody solved them. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I, I think this is a good opportunity to just like segue right into. Um, what is the truth about artificial intelligence that everybody's denying? Because I feel like there are a different set of probability factors. There's a lot of different people that are getting deep into this conversation from different angles, and everyone has their own opinion. Some people are extremely optimistic, um, almost to the point of naivete. Some people are super doom and gloom. Um, and extremely pessimistic. And I just I just watched for the second time the new Blade Runner movie. I don't know if you got a chance to see mm. that. But um, I have to say that is the best uh, cinema kind of demonstration of like what artificial intelligence in its in its ma- matured form could be. And it just brought in so many really fascinating elements that are uh, very, very thought-provoking to say the least, but um, I'm, you know, I'm wanting to really dive into this and get your perspective on this because I know that there's an elephant in the room when it comes to this, and uh, I'd love to, love to unpack that. So, so here's, here's the elephant in the room that nobody's really uh, talking about. Um, If you, 
if you throw a steak on your kitchen table and you look at your dog and you say, Spot, don't eat that steak, right? And Spot looks back at you like, I want the steak. Mm -hmm. Well, when you leave the room to go get a glass of wine, Spot is going to decide whether to eat your steak or not. Right. And when you talk to Spot, you know there's somebody in there. <laughs> um, in fact, my wife just got a new puppy about three months ago. And, you know, there is definitely somebody in there, you know. <laughs> was, I think everybody understands that. Well, there's, there's nobody in the machines. And really, artificial intelligence is a misnomer because it, if, if you have a, I think, a, a real functional, like human or even biological definition of intelligence, um, they're not intelligent at all. Now, you, you know, it's ironic. I, I think this is extremely ironic. People think that computers are intelligent and that bacteria aren't. Right. People people think that human technology is intelligent and that evolution isn't. Mm -hmm. No, that's completely backwards. Human technology is not intelligent. And all of biology, so far as I can possibly tell, is intelligent. And all evolution runs on some form of intelligence that we don't even understand. Okay, so like there is a, um, a video that came out from Harvard University less than a year ago. And what they do is they have this uh, big glass plate and it's divided up into sections. And what they, what they do is, is they, the first six, the first of the six sections has antibiotic in this liquid and they put bacteria in there and the bacteria it, it the antibiotic kills the bacteria, but then a few of the bacteria survive and eventually fill that whole part of the glass. Okay, and then as soon as they fill it up, they move to the next section of the glass, and in the next section, there's ten times more antibiotic. Okay, and then there's another one with ten times more, and there's another one with ten times more. So by by the time the experiment's done. What happens is, and you should look this up, like look up Harvard bacteria antibiotic on YouTube, and you will find this. Um, the, there's a few bacteria that survive the first trial, and they do it by mutating. They, they do it by intelligently mutating and trying to change their biology and their genetics until they actually succeed. Okay, and then they've developed resistance to antibiotic, and it can't kill them anymore. Right. Then they move it to 10 times the concentration, and then it kills most of them, but a few of them will survive, and then they fill it up. You know, they're like little entrepreneurs, okay, right? And then they go to 100x, then they go to 1,000x, then they go to 10,000x, then they go to 100,000x, then they go to a million times the concentration of the antibiotic. And in the space of about two weeks, um the last stage, you know, there's a few that survive and then they have now also overcome the, the antibiotic. Okay. So the biggest urban legend in the history of science, and I mean that in all sincerity, the biggest 
urban legend in the history of science is that that happened accidentally. It didn't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Bacteria know how to do something that we do. We do not know how to do computer program. We might know how to do it. Like it, because I, I suspect that it's really the same thing that happens when, you know, like a business is struggling to meet payroll and they're like, well, I don't know, you know, let's see, it's the 27th of the month and we got to pay our employees on the 30th and we don't have any money. So what are we going to do? And they start trying to think of stuff. Like, I, I think that's what these bacteria are doing there, but you know, nobody knows how to write a computer program that does that. If, if, um, if Microsoft knew what one bacteria knows, their stock price would jack up 10x overnight. And the products that they would be introducing to the marketplace would be exponentially superior to anything that exists right now. It would be kind of scary. Uh, so even the word artificial intelligence is misleading. What it is is algorithms. It's just algorithms. They just obey rules. All computer programs do is obey rules, and they both they obey them exactly. But see, this is in total contract contrast with Spot, who's deciding whether to eat your steak or not, and he'll actually, you know, obey you or not depending on how good his relationship with you actually is, which is an emotional connection. You know, a computer never felt an emotion in its entire life, and so. We have entire dimensions of behavior in the natural world that we don't even have language for or descriptions for in the mechanical human technology world. And and so and I in in my opinion, when you're in that much denial about stuff, like, well, then what else are you not telling us? Or what else are we not realizing here? Right. Um now, on this whole, like, dystopia kind of thing, it sounds like I need to see this movie. I haven't seen it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, sounds, sounds really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, if I look at the history of, of technology, like, I, I think you can predict the future based on the history. So, so you go, well, we got all these other technologies, all the way from computers to nuclear bombs and missiles to bicycles and cars and pollution and everything else. Well, so what is the history of technology? Well, the history of technology is that it always is a two-sided coin. Mm -hmm. Always, right? Hey, we got nuclear power. Great. Oh, yeah, but, you know, but we, we could blow up the world, right? right. Um, it, like, this, is, this has always been the case. So, the real issue here, here's what the real issue is. The real issue is that our technological prowess exceeds our moral judgment. So let, let me give you an illustration of this. My, my son, Kyler, is 19. Um, well, he was homeschooled. Um, he did a ton of theater and a lot of improv. He had voice lessons. He had acting lessons. He had singing lessons. He's been, he, he's had vocal coaches. And because of all that, he's a very good orator and he's a very articulate speaker. And he comes across being 10 years older than he actually is. On top of this, he's very good at sales. And so 
you know, and he's, he just, he's just out of high school and he's working for me and he's exploring all kinds of stuff. And I take him to entrepreneur meetings with me and, and like, man, like he's, he's getting the Harvard education of the entrepreneurial world. And I think it's great. And here's something I told him. I said, I said, you know, you're already really good and you come off really well and really polished. And now you're reading all these sales books and negotiation books, you know, and you could be frighteningly persuasive. I said, so you know what? You need to be reading all these books written before Gutenberg so you have wisdom because, Kyler, you never want your persuasion ability to exceed your actual wisdom. Because as my late friend Tom Hubiar said, people come out of those trances. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think that's where we're at with technology. And, and one of the things that has happened with, um, w- with our society and our culture is that we've thrown away all of the old stories. And we've replaced them with scientific propositions, okay? And so, so, um, so like all of the old stories, you know, whether it's the Grimm brothers or whether it's the boy that cried wolf or it's Leo Tolstoy or whether it's the Bible or the Talmud or, or you know, the Buddhist writings or whatever, almost all of that literature tells stories that with moral lessons, you know, that Cain kills Abel, right? Or, you know, Adam and Eve, um, they, they prefer knowledge to life. And so they get ejected from the garden and they lose their innocence. And all of these stories, like most people obsess about whether they're literally true or not. And they're actually completely missing the point. The point, okay, the point is what is the story supposed to be telling you? And what are you supposed to learn from the story? Well, we've almost scrubbed them out of our culture where you actually have to belong to a minority subculture or you will never hear them. Well, so if you have human beings with technological toys that are 10,000 times more powerful than anybody's stick or or bow and arrow or, or spear ever was, you know, back in the Bronze Age, but the humans are less morally educated and less aware of their choices than most people were in the Bronze Age, then you have a real serious disconnect. And it's only a matter of time before somebody makes a really big mistake. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and, you know, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Well, he's right. And, And anybody who scoffs at that doesn't really understand what he's talking about. He's, he's not saying that Apple's not going to come out with an iPhone 11. He's not (laughs) saying that. That is so completely different from what he's actually trying to say. What he, what he, what he's trying to say is that news is old things happening to new people. Right. And people have been in the same dilemmas and the same predicaments for the last, for all of recorded history. And it hasn't really change that much. This is actually one of the reasons why I tell my customers, and this is actually caught on within what I call Planet Perry, um, you should read something written before Gutenberg every day. Why? Because you're, you're square in the middle of that rich ancient literature with all those moral stories that helps you understand what you should do when you're in a predicament. 
And how many of those stories are stories about people in predicaments? I mean, every, everything, every, you know, it's like just on, I just have to get this out now because you're bringing up such an important point. When I think about taking it back to the, the artificial intelligence thing um, and technology as a whole, when I think about the fact that the majority of people, especially men, and especially the ones that are quote unquote running the show are typically morally bankrupt or compromised. They're not necessarily adults in the fully formed sense, but emotional children in adult bodies yes. and are in, and are archetypically illiterate, metaphorically illiterate. You know, one of the yes. points you're making is that I, I really believe that one of the big downfalls about our technological civilization is that we're in a we're in a form of literalism where and that's the big problem with a lot of religion, right, is where they've taken these old stories and they've taken a metaphor and made it literate and then right. created war and dogma and all the other kind of catastrophes that's come from uh, modern day organized religion and, and, and kind of fundamentalism. Right. And then That's now right. it's like there's emotionally wounded children playing with toys. And that's the biggest concern of every of all for me is like, what's the consciousness or lack thereof that's steering the ship? It's not so much like my worry about technology of it in of itself. It's my worry about who's the, who's the one pushing the button. Maybe the purpose, maybe the real um, existential purpose of Donald Trump is to show everyone a character of yes, themselves. Absolutely. <laughs> and maybe we're all a little more like Donald Trump than we'd all like to admit. Well, and that's probably why so many people are so, um, so triggered and so fearful Right. Because they're literally getting this this very, um, in many cases, dark and, and jarring reflection of certain repressed parts of themselves. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, you know, you, uh, it, look, we we did elect him. Mm -hmm. Now, mm -hmm. I didn't vote for him. Actually, I didn't vote for either one of them. I couldn't stand either one. Yeah. But collectively, we elected him. Mm -hmm. You know, even, look, if you really, really loved Hillary, well, you know, one, one of the reasons Trump got elected was that they, those people hated Hillary, right? Mm -hmm. And, and but, but she, she got the nomination, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, I suspect if she had won, we would be living a different version of the exact same drama. It would just have different names and different faces and different crises. But I don't know that it would be that different. Um, but in any case, like we're we're at a very low maturity level in our culture right now. You're at, you're absolutely right. You get you got people that they only know how to hear a story at the most literal level. And they don't, they don't know how to explore all the levels of meaning. One, one thing about the biblical stories is they're, they're nearly bottomless. 
you you almost can't find an end to the angles. Um, and so, like, for example, so um, about 20 years ago, I used to go to the largest church in Chicago, which is called Willow Creek. And Willow Creek had created this thing. Um, they didn't call it this, but I call it a demilitarized zone. Okay, and what the demilitarized zone was was instead of putting everybody into three into two categories, like you're either in or you're out, you're either Christian or, or not. They had three categories: they had Christian, non-Christian, and seeker. And seeker was I'm here to explore, and I don't know what I think, and I'm trying to figure this out. And their posture towards the seeker was we completely honor that. And nobody's going to breathe down your neck and nobody's going to force you or pressure you and nobody's going to judge you for that. We actually like you for that because you're trying to seek the truth and only you can decide what you think the truth is. So we're just going to respect that. Okay. And I thought that was incredibly cool. So I was leading this thing called a seeker small group. And a seeker small group was basically a Bible study for people who don't believe the Bible, which is really interesting. It's a really interesting thing to go do. And so I'd sit there and we'd have all these fascinating conversations. And 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 one day, um, everybody sort of agreed, you know, it might be a good idea to read the first few chapters of Genesis, which, you know, starts with the creation, and then there's Adam naming the animals, and then there's the Adam and Eve story in the fall. And, and everybody's like, yeah, Perry, let's let's do that. So let's start next week. So everybody comes back. And and so we start reading through this. And, and before we got started, I said, OK, everybody. So let's frame this a little bit. I said, I do not care whether you think this is literal or figurative or allegorical or somewhere in the middle or whatever. I don't care. We're just going to read it. Deal. Everybody's like, deal. Okay, so we start reading. Well, six weeks later, it was so apparent that we had fallen down a rabbit hole that we could spend years in. It was just unbelievable. And because we had started peeling the layers of the onion of the stories. And by the way, these stories, like Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which is like the whole setup of the Judeo-Christian worldview, you know, those three chapters are like three blog posts. Mm. they're not even that long. They are literally the richest literature that I've ever read anywhere. You could spend more time dissecting those stories and never get to the bottom of them than any other that I've ever seen. And, and so like within, you know, a month, month and a half, everybody's like, Oh my word. Like the questions that this is presenting with me in the mirror that this is presenting to, you know, to myself is so powerful that the question of how literally true this is, is so uninteresting mm. and kind of irrelevant. Okay. And, and what I was, what I was bringing them into was, uh, uh, you use the word archetypical, archetypical, archetypal thinking, which, uh, an, an, an archetype is a, well, I call it a, like a fractal person, like, like, uh, in, in, in Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge mm -hmm. is an archetypal evil boss. Right. Right. He, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a person that 
is really there's a lot of people like that person. And they're just a representative example. Um, and and if, if you read a lot of literature, you'll start to realize that there's only so many clicks on the human dial. And, and once you've kind of seen all the clicks, you kind of know what's going to happen and you know what you're dealing with and you know what's new under the sun or what's not new under the sun. And, 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 um, and so at that point, nobody was asking these really simplistic kind of sixth grade questions anymore. They were asking the kind of questions that you're supposed to ask in college, which Unfortunately, we currently aren't asking in most colleges either, you know, because they're doing postmodern deconstructionism instead of literature. But that's a whole nother subject. Um, and and so, so I've got all these people and they're going, wow, you know, I just read Marcus Aurelius and that was really brilliant. Or I just read Seneca and that was amazing. Or I just read this little piece from Maimonides from 1200 AD and man, that guy is smart. And like, yeah, you know, the smartest people are dead. Uh Mm -hmm. So it sounds like we're on a pretty similar wavelength here. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, um, so it's kind of, it's just fascinating now. So we're at this point in the conversation. We are also in this, this particular transition phase where humanity is going. And, you know, a lot of what I'm, I'm, I'm gathering from everything that you've shared is that we need to seek out wisdom more than we do um, information and technology and progression and, and um it's really what's lacking is the wisdom to know what to do with it, right? And that's that's right. And and you know what? Um, information is an addiction yes. for people who are wisdom deficient. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's sort of like if you eat Oreo cookies all day long, you'll never really stop being hungry. Because your body isn't getting the nutrients that it needs. And you have to kind of look at the world and realize that most people are on information addiction. And what they are precisely lacking is a framework and a structure for processing, organizing, and prioritizing the knowledge. Wisdom is knowledge of how to use knowledge. That's what wisdom is. Uh, Wisdom has a calming effect. Um, and so usually when you read lit- wisdom literature, you have to get yourself into a different RPM. Now, I'll tell, I'll tell you about a conversation I had just this morning. Um, I had this coaching call, and it was supposed to be with three different businesses. And it was kind of strange because this is kind of unusual, but two of them didn't show up. I mean, usually I get pretty high show up rates and stuff, but it just so happens I'm sitting there talking to this one other guy. And um, he's been doing another thing I've been teaching people to do, which is journal in the morning. Mm -hmm. Do not start your day with a device. Do not start your day with email. Do not start your day with social media. Go get your cup of coffee, sit down with a notebook and a pen and stream of consciousness, write and listen 
and ask and listen. And um, what I told him was, I said, if you're, if you're sitting down with your pad of paper and your cup of coffee and your, your objective this morning is to listen to God, I cannot guarantee you when you'll actually hear something. Uh-huh. It might take 10 seconds, 10 minutes, 10 days, 10 weeks, 10 months, or 10 years. I really don't know. And you have to regard what you're doing as pressing against the silence. Mm. Um, kind of like in this, in a weird, similar way that you would, you would practice your guitar every day, whether you feel like you're getting better or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're just going to, confront the deafening silence until the silence gets broken and you're not in charge of when the silence gets broken. The other is in charge of when the silence gets broken. And so it becomes this Zen-like exercise and you actually have to slow down in order to do that because speeding up will never get you there. But if you slow down and do that, you will eventually connect. And and that is the speed of poetry. That's the speed of ancient literature. That's the speed of meditation. That's the speed of the monastic community. And I think that is the speed, that's the RPM that's missing in the 21st century. And I'm finding that a lot of people are actually gravitating towards this um, I'm I, I find a remarkable number of conversations where people are engaging with the ancient mystics they're reading the Irish authors that lived on an island you know a hundred years ago or um, you know they're they're reading you know Saint Teresa of Avila or, or something. And, and they're going, wow, you know, this is really relevant to where I am right now. And I have to, like, um, I mean, I think this is what mindfulness is is supposed to be about, of, of being able to put yourself in a particular place that is not physically where you happen to be right now. Yeah, I know I'm in traffic in Los Angeles, but I'm actually standing on a cliff in Western Ireland and I'm, I'm actually channeling that energy instead of just uh, chugging down exhaust fumes. And, 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 and in a very strange and paradoxical way, it actually makes me more present, not less. Right. Right. So there's, there's as, as everything speeds up, there is this very intrinsic need for existential kind of satisfaction or, or not even satisfaction is totally not the right word, but like almost like existential preservation, because I'm thinking of, um, you know, how we started this conversation and talking about the, the artificial intelligent. I know that's, that's kind of a misnomer term, but yeah. the, the technological progression and this, like this 
acceleration of technology being the interface for reality, there is this existential crisis. There's this existential kind of anxiety that is pretty much epidemic all over the world, especially in the Western world. I know that I've felt it. I know that a lot of people are feeling it and, um, and we mask it, medicate it, pacify it, uh, avoid it at any means possible. And information absorption is, is one of many ways that we avoid that, that quiet calling inside of us that you're mentioning. And it sounds like no matter what we try to do, the only way out is to go in. Yeah. 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 In fact, um, I, I, about a year and a half ago, I was on an Island in Western Ireland. It's actually my favorite place in the world. It's called the great Blasket Island. And I have this friend, she spent the summer, um, running the, the coffee shop on the Island. Um, well, there's, there's a boat that takes you over. It's about three miles from the shore. There's no electricity. Uh, they do have running water, they do have hot water, and they they have gas, but that that's it. And and this is just in you know, in in two little houses on one end of the island, and the rest is all just it's nature. It's all nature, and it's it's the most beautiful place I've ever been. But anyway, my friend Jerry, she um, she was working there, and she says um, she says one day I was I was serving tea and coffee and I overheard this argument that this couple was having and the guy goes man isn't this great you know there's that island out there and there's the seals and there's the beach and there's the ocean and and man we're just surrounded by beauty and she's like what are you talking about like there's nothing to buy there's no shopping there's nothing to do here like get me out of this place as soon as possible like why did you even bring me here? Like she's livid. And my, my friend, Jerry, she's like, you know, some people can't even stand to be alone with themselves for more than like five minutes. And by the way, like if there was ever a place to go, um, commune with nature and commune with God, like this is like the best place in the whole world. Okay. It is, it is fabulous. Right. But man, if you're afraid of that, um, you know, it's, it's bad news now, you know, um, I, I, I also, this might sound like, uh, like a huge segue and it's really not, um, you know, you know, there's, there's this whole, uh, slice of, of, te- of technologists or maybe techno utopians who believes that Moore's law is going to solve all of our problems. And Moore's law is the fact that for the last 40 years, um, transistors have doubled in density and halved in price um, every two years. So every two years, computers double in speed and get less expensive, right? Which, of course, is amazing, right? It means the graphics are going to keep getting better and the, you know, the apps are going to keep getting better and everything's going to get faster. Um, but you know, then there, there's this whole idea that, well, you know, pretty soon the computers will be smarter than us and then we'll upload ourselves into the computers and then we'll live forever on the Internet. And I mean, literally, there's people saying stuff like this. Well, do you realize that really the narrative that they're saying is that speed is our salvation? Right. That that's really what they believe? 
And what this really is, is just an atheist rapture story mm-hmm. without Jesus. It's like, well, we take away Jesus and we replace it with silicon chips and, and the internet. You know, it's almost like the worship of the internet and the silicon chips, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's it's not just ridiculous, it's, it's redonkulous, mm-hmm. right? Like, you're not going to upload yourself on the internet. Are you crazy? And by the way, if you did... Have you ever thought about the problems? Like, so who's going to manage your server? Right. And what about your antivirus? And like, what happens if you forget to pay your bill? And, you know, like, I mean, it's just crazy questions that, that, that come up. And, it, and it, you know, for anybody to believe that, like, you have to have such a, um, a, a famished conception of what a human being actually is. It's just astounding. I, I can't believe anybody falls for this, but a lot of smart, allegedly smart people do. Yeah, well, it's kind of like you take the smartest people in the world, you put them through hyper-specialized funnels of education, you put them in a little dark corner in a laboratory, and you feed them all the wrong theories, and then then you basically <laughs> you basically let them loose um, to their own devices. So you put all the smartest, most capable people in these little corners and you don't have to worry about them, right? They don't have to cause any trouble. So then everyone <laughs> else is easily programmed through this like scientismic, um, yeah. atheistic kind of religion that most people think is science, but it's actually scientism, right? That's, uh, that's absolutely right. And, 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 um, you know, and biology is just crippled with scientism. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fact, you know, the prohibitions in biology are, are, are astounding. So for most of the last hundred years, it's been literally forbidden to suggest that evolution or biology is actually purposeful. Um, it, like that purpose has been banned from the discussion and anybody that dared use the word purpose in relation to biology was branded a heretic and many times like just literally fired. Um, uh, but, but this is actually starting to change. Um, here, I, I'll give you an example. Um, I, I've got a good friend. His name is Dennis Noble. Um, he's a professor at Oxford. He just published a paper um, called, Is the Watchmaker Blind or Is She One-Eyed? Mm. Now, let, let me dissect what that means, okay? Uh, is the Watchmaker Blind? That is a reference to a book by Richard Dawkins called The Blind Watchmaker, uh, which is about 40 years old. And The Blind Watchmaker says that the only purposeful thing in nature is natural selection, basically survival of the fittest. Everything else is random and accidental. And, and, and we're basically just lumbering robots driven by our genes. Um, and, uh, and, and that, that nature is blind and purposeless. Well, what, what, what Dennis Noble says, and by the way, he's one of the top 100 scientists in the entire UK. Um, he has an Order of the British Empire medal from Queen Elizabeth. He, he's the guy who figured out cardiac rhythm, which made pacemakers possible. So he's an eminent, eminent scientist. And in his paper, he showed, um, all, he cited all this research showing 
that cells evolve at least somewhat intentionally and somewhat purposefully. So he's saying, no, the watchmaker is the cell, and the cell has at least some visibility as to what it's trying to do. Well, and he got it through, okay? In fact, I consider that the, this to be a major crack in the Berlin Wall. For those who are old enough to remember the Berlin Wall, like when that thing came down, it came down fast, and the Iron Curtain came down fast. And the same thing is happening now in biology, because the toothpaste is out of the tube. And, um, you know, the, pe the people that didn't want his paper to get published, they're finding their efforts to be less and less and less successful. And really, ironically, it's all the technology we have for studying biology that's making the previous views completely ridiculous. Like, we know too much about what goes on in a, inside a cell for anybody to think that this just happens by accident. And so... There's a whole paradigm shift that's going on right now, and it's going to be like the next five or ten years is going to be very interesting. But what concerns me is that this, this progression out of these immature views needs to happen fast because our technology is giving us the ability to do some pretty scary things. And it's, it's, like, it's just like what I said to, to my son, you know, your wisdom needs to exceed your skill, your persuasion skill, your technological skill. And, and if, if it does, you'll do really good things right. and you'll make judicious decisions and you'll be happy with what you did. In fact, you'll be very proud of what you did and you'll feel satisfied with how you spent your life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And this, this, everything you just said is, is why this show is called the holistic human optimization show, because <laughs> it's focused on optimizing the whole, the whole human mentally, emotionally, physically, healthfully, um, wealthfully, entrepreneurially, however that might that might look for somebody's intrinsic desire to contribute to humanity. Um, you know, it, it's about it's about every aspect of the human experience. It's not just about overdeveloping ourselves mentally, but forgetting about the physical body or forgetting about our emotional body. For for goodness' sake, I mean that to me feels like the biggest the biggest, um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess drawback of, of our kind of quote unquote civilization, if you even can call it that anymore, but, um, is the emotional development because it feels like to me, whenever a human being actually explores their emotions and, uh, potential traumas and things that they've been through in their past and they reconcile and they get connected emotionally then um, an awakening starts to happen and they can no longer do the unconscious behaviors that were mm -hmm. most likely contributing to the, the, the problem of the whole. Uh, that, that's right. You know, I, I started going through that about 10 years ago mm. and it was a bitch. <laughs> it's not fun. Okay. Um, but, you know, it, what it was like... It was like being in a tunnel and crawling on your hands and knees through the tunnel, not having any idea how long the tunnel was going to be or where I'm going to, or when I'm going to get out of this thing. All I know is it's impossible to crawl backwards. Right. And that was it. I mean, 
there was a little bit of a long dark night of the soul right there. But like, I just had to do it. And, and one of my mentors, he told me, cause he, he was kind of walking me through this and man, I'm glad, I'm glad I had somebody, which maybe I'll circle back and, and there's a little bit of that story I should tell you, but he told me, um, he said, listen, Perry, you know, your emotions right now are tangled up in a, in a whole bunch of old, crappy memories and experiences and things that you haven't finished processing. Mm-hmm. He said, once you get through this and, you know, I mean, it was, I don't know, it was, I, some days it felt like I was just like chewing broken glass. Like, you know, when are we going to be done with this? Right. <laughs> um, but he said, if, if you just be patient with yourself and get through this and get this stuff processed, he said, a whole bunch of your emotional and psychic capacity will be released and become available to you. And it's not available right now because it's all tied up doing these other things. You know, it's kind of like, well, you know, one of your hands is holding this little thing down and your foot is holding this other thing down. And, you know, like you're missing a hand and you're missing a foot. And you're trying to get through life with, you know, half of your limbs. You, you know, when, when you finally get that stuff free and it's back to being yours again, you're going to have so much more intuition, so much more emotional capacity. You're going to be so much more intelligent like functionally, emotionally intelligent. And he was right. He was, he was absolutely right. And I, and I should mention a little, a little story of how that relationship developed. So he was my, well, he was, he was old enough to be my father and we would hang around in seminars together. We just really hit it off. So he was in, you know, I was in my late thirties. He was in his late sixties And we would bunk together at seminars and masterminds and things like that. We'd hang out. One day I get a phone call. He he was a CEO in Silicon Valley. In fact, he was a CEO of a biotech company. And uh, one day he calls me. He goes, Perry, um, I need to talk to you. You got a minute? I'm like, yeah, what's up, man? And he goes, uh, he goes, the chairman of the board just fired me. He goes, he goes, um, you know, it, it looks like they might manage to take away my stock options. Uh, my income stream is done with. Uh, they, they just basically kicked me out of this company. And um, I have to make it on my own. And, and on top of this, he had been fiercely loyal. So he had been going to entrepreneurial masterminds, but he had been doing so as a CEO of a company. Okay, so he was straddling two worlds. And he was like this almost over-responsible kind of guy. He was like, okay, I have this company I'm in charge of. I have these employees I'm in charge of. I owe them my total commitment. So I'm not going to do business on the site. I'm not going to do all this other stuff. I'm going to take care of these people because this is my job. And this is how he looked at it. They fired him. And so he didn't have a backup plan. He's like, so he goes to Perry – he goes, you're actually ahead of, of the entrepreneurial curve compared to me. You have more experience being an entrepreneur than I do. He goes, can we talk for an hour every week? And I thought, an hour? 
Oh my word. That's like a lot. And I kind of gulped a little. I'm like, um, okay. And, you know, I thought, man, that's like a lot of time. Well, here's what happened. So we started talking for an hour every week. And we started having the standing date. And every week, Perry would talk to Tom and Tom would talk to Perry. Well, my midlife crisis hit like a year later. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Guess what we spent most of our hour talking about? Uh-huh. It wasn't him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't him. Mm-hmm. He he fathered me through probably the hardest season of my life. Wow. Okay. And so, you know, you just never know. I, I can tell you this is um, the day you really, really, really need a friend is not the day to start a friendship. Uh, <laughs> that's very, very good words to use. And, and man, he, he kept me from uh, all kinds of stupidity spasms. Mm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Perry, I know about that. So let me tell you what's going on with that. Like, okay, don't give into that temptation, Okay. No, please don't say that to your wife. That's not going to help. <laughs> Tom was great. Uh, he, he died seven years ago and one of the best friends I ever had. And, uh, you know, we had a very special friendship. And, man, you know, if, if uh, people listening, if you have just a handful of friends that good, um, then you, party, at least part of your life is really rich. Thank you for sharing that. And um, that was a great, that was a great last five and 10 minutes um, to conclude our overall conversation. Obviously, this is a, this is something that we could continue to go down a rabbit hole, but I think this is something that, or this is a conversation that can help people really um, discern where they want to put their particular focus as they go down their own rabbit hole um, in this particular topic whether that's, you know, artificial intelligence, wanting to learn more about that or the trajectory of the human race or what they can do personally to influence the trajectory, which I believe in kind of what we pointed out in the, the, the final segment here is to work on yourself and to make your own development um, the focus of your life and not to put your focus into externalized stimuli um, whether that's information overload, technology, or anything, or or noise and chatter, but to actually listen to that silent voice inside of you that is guiding you um, towards your own particular growth and evolution. Yeah, I I think you're right. Um, so yeah, the way out is the way in, and 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 I don't mean that narcissistically, right? Um, at all. Uh, it, it, in fact. Um, in a, in a lot of ways, it's just getting completely over yourself and beyond yourself. Um, so yeah. Um, so the good news is you don't need a large number of people who are self-aware and willing to work on themselves to make a big difference. Um, and and, 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 and all you can do, all you can work on is you, you know, one, one of the problems we have right now is everybody's trying to fix everybody else. Right. 
dude, fix yourself. Right. You, you don't know. I, I, I learned this in my midlife crisis, you know, I, and I learned this from Tom. You know, he's like, Perry, don't try to fix your wife. Fix yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't try to fix your wife. Fix yourself. <laughs> when, when you shift, she'll shift. So true. And it, it is true. So true. It, it takes two to tango. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, this has been good. Wise words indeed. Um, and your link for your website will be in the show notes. But for just for everyone listening, where can they find your website and your books? Um, for, for the, for evolution 2.0, go to cosmicfingerprints.com. There's a whole bunch of jump off points. You can go into social media or you could look at our $5 million technology prize, or you could, you could get free chapters of the book. Um, so that's, that's one option. If, if you want the business side, go to perrymarshall.com. Okay. You know, all my books are on Amazon. Okay. Excellent. Perry, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an incredible conversation. It's gone in a few different twists and turns, which I love. And um, just really appreciate you showing up. It's been fun, Ronnie. And thanks for asking great questions and kind of going off the reservation for a little while. I, I, I enjoyed this. It was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating episode of the Holistic Health and Human Potential show. Before you head off, I want to invite you to go to my website for further podcast episodes and tons of free content on holistic health, natural nutrition, and human potential. Please go to www.ronnylandis.net to find out how to take your health and your life to the next level. And also, I want to encourage you to leave a five-star review for this podcast on our iTunes page, which will help me in my mission to get these inspiring messages to millions of people throughout the world. I thank you so much for your support, and I look forward to continuing to provide amazing conversations and content on holistic health and human potential.